Uh, it's kind of a overview of the Bible. It's going to give us a Bible run through in the process, and then kind of it's it's put in there. It's not necessarily chronologically just before the Book of Revelation was written. In fact, first, second, and third John were written after Jude was written, but it is put in there because it is kind of a summary that is a lead-in and reminder of the Book of Revelation. So, before we begin, let's just take a moment for prayer and uh, get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Pray for the sound system. Pray for this sound system of my voice, and uh, we'll do what we can do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your mercy and love and grace and all your blessings and all your tests. We thank you for your amazing word that is giving us direction in the middle of a crooked and perverted generation. And Father, I pray this morning, once again, you will instruct us from it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're at uh, the third verse of Jude. Uh, you might remember the first two verses were an introduction into the book, telling us who it was. Uh, the actual name is Judas here uh, in the Greek, but it's not Judas Iscariot. There were a lot of Judases in the first century. In fact, there were two other Judases in the 12 uh, disciples besides Judas Iscariot. So it is a common name, but they uh, decided they call it Jude so as not to cause any immediate confusion uh, with people. And then in verse 3 and 4, we're going to find the purpose of the book. He's going to tell us why he is, uh, why he's writing it, what, what his main purpose is, and give us some guidance there. So he says in verse 3, he says, Beloved. Beloved is the word agapetos. Uh, it's the word used 61 times. And it's used in uh, Matthew 3.17 of the father's statement about his son. Uh, it's also used by Paul, Peter, James, John, the writer of Hebrews, and now Jude. And it basically refers to a recipient of love. It comes from the word agape, and it means that, that he says beloved. So he's writing to anybody who's been a recipient of God's love. He says, while I was making every effort to write you. And every effort is the word spude. Spude is a word that means diligence. It's used 12 times. It means to make an honest effort at doing something and to try and do so with a zeal and a speed. And he says to write you about our common salvation. The word common is an interesting word. It's koine. It's a word that we use to describe the Greek of the New Testament. It's koine Greek. It means common Greek. And it's kind of the uh, language of the street. It's not the classical Greek. There is a little cl classical Greek. We'll see uh, next session in the first five verses of the Gospel of Luke. It's pure classical Greek that's being written there. But the New Testament, for the most part, is Koine Greek. And uh, he says it's, it's, it's common. And it is a common salvation, saying it's something that is open to everyone. Salvation is the uh, word soteria. It's used 46 times. 
And this is a word I've mentioned multiple times, means a preservation from something. Soteria means to be preserved from something. Ruomai means to be rescued from the danger of something. A lot of times they can refer to the same act because we're preserved from it and we're rescued from it. But they have two uh, different focuses um, etymologically. So here he's talking about the preservation for, uh, from the penalty for sin. He said, we're not going to face the penalty for sin because it's been paid for by somebody else. And I want to talk to you about that. Now, in context, here are some other issues of the power of sin that Jude is going to be exposing. He's going to be talking to us not just about the penalty for sin, which is death, and that was taken care of by the Lord, but he's also broke the power of sin. And the power of sin can cost us inheritance. <laughs> he's, excuse me. He said, I felt <laughs> you're going to get some awful, interesting volume changes this morning. That's all I can tell you. I'm going to do the best I can, but sometimes there's no control over exactly what comes out. Anyway, what? Preach on, huh? Okay, this has changed out. We're going to try this thing. Test. Test. Hoorah. All right. Let's try this one. I feel more free. I'm so afraid I'm going to knock this thing over <laughs> with, with some of my explanations of the terms. <laughs> anyway, he says, I felt the necessity. Words actually have. He says, I have the necessity. In other words, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's telling us. He says, I have the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Now, this word appealing is parkaleo. It's our word for encouragement. It means to call alongside. It's translated to encourage, to comfort, to exhort. And he says, uh, I, I like the word exhorting here, that you contend earnestly for the faith. The word contend earnestly is epagonizomai. That's a big mouthful of word right there. And it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Agonizomai means that it's got a lot of labor involved in, in it. And epi means labor upon labor. And so it intensifies it. So he says that you contend as a combatant. You're not on the sidelines. You're, in the, you're on the field. You're actually out there uh, playing the game. And he says, appealing that you contend earnestly... <coughs> <coughs> for the for the faith <coughs> I've got a, I've got multiples along with multiple pills this morning nasal sprays and everything else so anyway we're going to go here he says contending earnestly the word agonizo by the way is a word that is used in 1 Timothy 6.12. It says to fight the good fight. 
where Paul is is talking about that, and that's what we're we're called to do. For the faith, <coughs> which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now the faith here uh, is all about the object of the faith. And anytime we see the word faith, we have a real tendency to think, what what do I believe? What can I make myself believe? But the interesting thing about faith is what is the object of your faith? Because you can believe a whole lot of wrong stuff, which we're going to see here in the next verse. The question is, what do you believe? Who do you believe? Where do you get your truth from? And so, which was once... Interesting word to throw in here. And this is the word hapox, which means one time, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, when you start looking at this, the New Testament's not even completed yet. So he can't be talking about the Scripture here. He can't be doing that because we have three epistles of John. We have the book of Revelation. And commonly that's taken to say, well, this is the Scripture, but it's not once for all delivered Yet, because the canon is not complete. So what's it talking about? Who is a better question to ask? And that is based on the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, He is the object of the faith, once and for all, delivered to the saints. Now, Jude is clearly addressing believers. Okay, Beloved, that's who he calls them. He's clearly talking to believers. Some people try to take every book, especially the New Testament, and make it a book of salvation. When usually it's talking about Christian life and Christian growth and what do you do after you're born again. So he is addressing believers quite clearly. The inspiration began with a desire to write about the preservation from the penalty for sin. This is a common salvation. Now, who took care of this problem of the penalty for sin? Okay, the penalty for sin is death, and it's got to be overcome or you spend eternity in hell. So how do you get to heaven? Well, the penalty of sin has to be paid for, which it has, and you have to accept Christ's penalty for the payment for it. That's why he's called the Redeemer, who propitiates us from all of our sins. That's why he's got various titles in the Scripture. So the penalty for sin has been Paid for. So that's what he started off to write about. It then led to an internal burden to write believers about the importance of fighting to keep the object of our faith of primary importance. And that's what the word hopox is about. It's another way of saying, a beautiful way of saying, the reason Jesus is the reason for the season. Keep the main thing the main thing. When you're talking about all this theology and everything else, don't leave Jesus out of it. I, I get to, <coughs> I like Christmas music. Some of the things they've done to it lately, I don't prefer. <coughs> and sometimes I'm listening to Christmas music and I'm going, where's Jesus? Where Where is he? Some of the newer songs that come out, it's all about, hey, you know, gifts and giving and what I can do for other people. That's fine and good, but where is the main gift in this song? And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering about that. 
the object of our faith, the person of our faith, the one we trust for our eternal salvation. He has to be kept number one. (coughs) Considering the next verse, (coughs) the object is clearly Jesus Messiah, whom we receive by grace through faith. Considering the next verse, it's obviously Jesus Christ. Because he's going to point that out in verse 4. So in context, we know this salvation is about him. And how do we receive him? By grace we've been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It is not of works, lest any should boast. So at the first advent, he was placed beside mere man. Now, it didn't bring the word out very well where he says, this faith once for all delivered to the saints. Paradidomi is a word that means to give beside of. It's an interesting word. It's got a wide variety of um, uses and meaning. It's a word that's actually used to to describe what Judas did to Jesus. He betrayed him. He placed beside him. He He put the evil people in his periphery. And he says... This faith, though, on the other side of the coin, what Judas did to betray, this faith was put beside us. And it's there for our edification and for our, our benefit. So at the first advent, he was placed beside mere man. That's us. We're going to start next class with John 1.14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. So he was placed beside us to bear the sins of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse yet to be written when this book is being written, but one that explains things more clearly. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. Two verses earlier, he said, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just who forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. And then this verse, I'm writing you that you might not sin. Because he knew and, and could see that some people would take this confession of sin and take it as a license to sin. Okay? And that's not the way Christian life should be. He says, if anyone sins, though, we do have an advocate with the Father. An advocate is the defense attorney. The picture is, is that We're in the courtroom of God, and Jesus is our defense attorney, and Satan levels a charge, which we know he does from Revelation 12, and he levels a charge against believers, and Jesus steps up and says, that one's paid for. That one's paid for. You can't have this this sheep. I agree. Okay? He says, we have an advocate, a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. See, this thing is propitiation. The penalty for sin has been satisfied to the Father for every member of the human race. So the question becomes now, what do you think of the one that, that, that bought and paid for it? What do you think of Christ? That's what the question is. Not what kind of sins have I done? How many have I done and all this stuff? God reached down that propitiation. No matter what you've done, 
He's taking care of it. He was then betrayed by those he came to save. Okay? The ones that he came to save betrayed him. Son of man did not come to serve himself, but to serve others. That's, that's who he was. And the information is placed beside us, indicating we have to ingest it into our spiritual system. This what we think about a little bit. Jesus became man. He dwelt among us. Okay, he lived a perfect life. He died, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended to the Father. We know that. But his place beside us is not put in us. We have to accept it. We have to ingest it. Make it a part of our spiritual system. In part, this is portrayed by the Lord's table. From 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Literally, keep on doing this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you eat, eat it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes back. Now see, that's just a picture of the fact that that's what the Lord's table is designed to do. It's to show us we need to ingest, we need to partake, we need to dine on this food. So scripture, in this context of this verse, exhorts us to study the word in order to defend the faith. Study the word in order to defend the faith. Now some Christians study the word just for personal intellect, personal education, and, and that's just part of it. We should want to know the word of God without question, but we should want to know the word of God in order to live it. John 7, 17, when I first started out after seminary, I was in a, in a knowledge quest, and I wanted to learn everything I could, which is all good. But <clears throat> then I run into verses like 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Huh. So knowledge all by itself is not good enough. And then you go through John, the Gospel, chapter 5. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But these bear witness of me. He's the giver of eternal life, not the written word. So it, it's very clear that we are, and he says, John 7, 17, if any man is willing to do his will, then he will know the teaching. See, that's what it means to be a disciple. Are you willing to do it or just willing to learn it? We have a lot of people been through seminaries. We have a lot of them teaching in seminaries. And it's all about the education and the uh, uh, intellect that is into it rather than the personal relationship with the living God. And that's a mistake. Now, that is part of why we have verse 4. The uh, principle, study the word in order to defend the faith. There are a lot of different ways to, to do this. In fact, I had a... Uh, uh, 
This was one of the books that came out at the Christmas party last week. And uh, we had a bunch of them around here. I don't know how many more we've got. This is an apologetics book done by David Noble. Started Summit Ministries up in Colorado. Absolutely a wonderful um, wonderful place. They, they take high school kids, college kids, and even us dumb old adults, and they try to teach us about different worldviews and what, why they're different, where they're different, and then how to combat them. And this is an excellent book just to give you an idea of, of, of how to answer when you run into Islam, when you run into Hinduism. When you run into, uh, it doesn't cover Zoroastrianism in particular, but when you run into these these uh, uh, various things. You know, we're supposed to study in order to defend. It's, it's sad because I think a lot of times Christians, especially over the last hundred years, they got more interested in the fellowship than in the study. And I think churches need to have a balance. They need to have a balance of teaching, Bible study, fellowship, and evangelism. That's what I think is a balanced church. And I think it's taught very well through church at Thessalonica, faith, hope, and love, multiple places throughout the scripture. Now verse 4 is the need. He says, For certain men... Now, this is a real broad-based generic term coupled with the word anthropos in the plural. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. This is the word paraisduno. It's only used one time in the New Testament. And it means to slide into something, paraisduno, as the sun slips into the sea. Okay? Smooth consistent means they have just slid in like something normal in life and they've crept in unnoticed uh, those who long beforehand marked out were marked out for this condemnation long beforehand is the word palai which means that uh, in Hebrews 1, 1, God, after he spoke long ago in different ways, um, we, we find the word prographo here, which is only used four times to write beforehand. They were long ago marked out beforehand. In other words, God knew what was going to happen. God is omniscient, but omniscience doesn't mean determinism. He knows what is going to happen, because, but he still allows for volition. And that's a big part of the angelic conflict and why we're here and why the battles go on in such ways as they do. How he can foretell the end from the beginning because he knows every decision everybody will ever make. Pro or con, for him, against him, uh, against other people, he knows all of those things. And he says, these were known a long time ago. And he says, marked out for this condemnation. Krema is a word for judgment that is used here. And then he starts describing them. Ungodly. A sebase is a word used nine times. And this is ungodly means they have no reverence for God. 
Sabia is a word that indicates reverence or awe or respect. And you put an A on the front of it, it means they have no reverence or awe or respect. And he says, uh, now, interesting, Hasebes is only used of unbelievers. Okay, sometimes these words that are really bad words are used to describe believers. But Hasebes is a word used only for unbelievers. And the word uh, Asabia, which is one of its related words, is used for both unbelievers and believers, referring to the act of being irreverent. So this is not simply unbelief. This is irreverence. Now we're seeing that now become more and more public and manifest. People openly expressing their hatred for God, their disbelief in God. And this is ungodly. This is what it's, what it's talking about. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Now, the word turn is metatothamy. Uh, used six times. It goes with snuck in. They snuck in and they did this. It is a, a verb that looks at their actions. And it's a word that means to place away. Tathami means to place something. Meta means away. Hence to transpose. Uh, it is to put in the place of a, one thing in the place of another. Now, <clears throat> it's used twice in Hebrews 11.5 of Enoch being translated into heaven. Okay, this is Enoch, seventh generation from Adam. And he got translated, caught up, moved into heaven. Okay, so this word's used to describe that action. It's used in Hebrews 7.12 of changes in the priesthood. Huh. When there is a change in the priesthood of necessity, there's a change in the law. And I think that's the standard markers of what's a dispensation and what is not. When did they change the priesthood? Well, when they change the priesthood, then there's a change of law. It's used of, in Galatians 1.6, people who accept the gospel of works in the place of grace. They've transposed the gospel. So it's interesting, the word's not used very often, but every time it is, it gives us a little more insight into what it means. The grace of God into licentiousness. Uh, this is the word asogia, used ten times. And this is a word that denotes a shameless and immoral conduct. A lack of restraint. This word shows up in a lot of sin lists. You find it like in Mark 7.22. It's out of the heart of man comes. All those things that are listed. <coughs> Excuse me. New American Standard usually translates it sensuality. I, I think the word licentiousness is a lot better because this is an attitude of a freedom from restraint. Whereas the word sensuality tends to lean towards sexual issues. This word actually includes sexual issues, but is not limited to it. So, he says they've turned the grace of our God 
into a license to sin. That's what they've done. And he says, and they deny the second problem, or naomai. This word's 33 times it's used of Peter's denials of our Lord. Okay, They deny our only master. Only, there's a whole lot of Greek in this verse. Monos means to the exclusion of all others. It's saying there's just one master. It's another verse that says, just by complete inference here, there's, there's only one way to heaven. And he says of our master, despotes, which refers to ownership. A despot means they have an absolute ownership. And Lord, kurios, which has a wider meaning and is applicable to various ranks and relationships in life. And he says this, what, what do they do? They turn his grace into a license to sin, and they deny who he really is. And he says, our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude is warning the readers concerning unbelievers who come into the church, often alongside believers. It's happened for a long time, you know, for centuries, actually, that it goes back. And what has happened is they're bringing in worldly viewpoints. They're bringing in different world views. The uh, Noble Book here has eight different major worldviews that are found around the world. And it will talk about how they view God or their gods. It'll talk about law, morality, so sociology. It'll talk about all those different areas and where they are indeed different. Now, <clears throat> he's warning them about unbelievers. They've come into the church, often alongside believers. I'll give you an example of that. We uh, uh, were called to minister to a place in Eastern Europe, which is in, uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, Republic of Georgia. Republic of Georgia uh, called us because they had a Baptist union there and they have four bishops over this Baptist union and one of the bishops they sent they shouldn't have done it but they sent him to Cambridge to get educated Okay, well he came back and he came back with a whole new theology it was interesting theology it was, it was a liberal Purely liberal theology about, uh, you know, homosexual marriages and everything else. And he brought this back to put it into the church. Well, he had two other bishops that were going along with him, one of which was his daughter. And then one bishop said, this is wrong. It's not biblical. And they stood against this guy that had come back from Cambridge with all this newfound knowledge. But what happened? Unbelievers had crept in to that school. And then they start bringing in their pastors and priests and bishops and whatever you want to call them. They bring them in and they re-educate them. Then they send them back out and they change things to match the world instead of the word. And therein is the problem. And so they called us and the guy said, I've got about 50 pastors, and he said, they, ha they don't know a whole lot, and what can you do? And we just developed that second book back there on defending the faith and why we believe what we believe, and he said, can you come over and teach it? So we took a team over there and went over 
for a week and got them all together and were able to uh, show them why what that other bishop was saying was wrong. And they managed to stand firm, stand their ground, and they actually won. They won the battle. So that's, that's a praise the Lord. But to defend the faith, you have to have the knowledge to defend the faith. And if you don't become a Berean and study for yourself and figure it out, you just, you just can follow anybody, anywhere. And so these unbelievers had gotten into these universities. You know, Harvard started off as a seminary. Yale started off as a seminary. These Ivy League schools started off as seminaries, and look where they are now. They don't even want people to talk about God. There's a a problem there. Unbelievers move in, and that's what Jude was warning about. And he says, by the way, they've already arrived. That was back in the first century. So we should have been on the alert a lot better. They're seeking to transpose the message of the Lord or the message of man, starting with the gospel. Galatians 1, verse 6 and 7. Now, Galatians, the first book Paul wrote of his 13 epistles of the New Testament, written somewhere around 48 A.D., 15 years into the church age. And he says, I am, so, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, capital H, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel. Okay? The one we brought you is good. They bring you a different gospel. It's not really another gospel. It's just different words. Only there's some who are disturbing you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul goes on to say, if I or an angel from heaven comes to you with a different gospel, don't listen to them and let them be accursed. So Paul is saying, what I brought to you, and what did he bring to them? It's a gospel of grace through faith. It gets expressed in Ephesians better than it's expressed in Galatians right here. But it's very clear it's a gospel of grace that he brought to them to begin with. Because the Jews were were into a gospel of works. And this newfound thing was all about grace. Now the infiltrators bring with them a twofold message. First of all, grace is a license to sin. That's their message. Oh, the grace of Jesus Christ, the license to sin. You know, he loves us while we're sinners. He loves us while we're enemies. Romans 5 tells us that. He's, he's loved us all along. But you know, it's very clear, he doesn't like sin. And sometimes people think, well, he loves me even though I'm a sinner. So shall we sin so grace shall abound? That's Romans 6, 1. May it never be. Never be. So he says there's a battle with sin, a battle with the power of sin. You're now part of the family. You're an adopted child of God as a believer. That's who you are. And you're in his hand. Nothing can take you out of his hand. But there's a whole lot of growing up to do after you're born again. And so he's saying they've come into the church and they said, Grace is the license to sin. 
Now, I've seen that in churches all over the country. A lot of churches don't even talk about sin anymore because, golly, somebody might get offended and leave. If you don't think there's any such thing as sin, you don't need a Savior. That's just, that's the bottom line. So if, if you're, you, you know, if, if you're not a sinner, saved by grace through faith, and you think that, hey, it's all fine and good, there's no need for a Savior at all. Uh, Thomas Samuel, one of our missionaries, who's gone to be with the Lord, he made that statement about Hindus in India. He said they don't believe there's any sin. There's just good karma and not so good karma. Okay, so if there's just good karma and not so good karma, why do I need a Savior? He said you have to show them that there's a thing called sin, a missing of the mark. You've you've shot the arrow at the target and you have and you have missed. But some people think grace is a license to sin. I've seen them use 1 John 1, 9 as a license to sin. Well, I'll go ahead and do it, and then I'll just confess it, and everything will be fine. And they leave a trail of casualties in their wake when they do that. I've, I've seen them do it over and over again. They've also I've seen another thing that says, well, it's not about confession. You don't need confession of sin at all. And then the next thing you know, where's that verse go? Right out the window. Are we supposed to dwell in our sins with a guilt feeling? No. Why? They've been paid for. But if we want to do the things pleasing in the eyes of our Savior, we shouldn't want to sin. Because those are not pleasing things in his eyes. And the denial of our only Savior. And how, do, how do you do that? I think any time you start putting works into trying to be saved from the penalty for sin, you're really denying the work he did on the cross. And you think about it, didn't he the propitiation for our sins and those of the whole world? We just saw that, 1 John 2, 1. That, that's who he is. But it's, a, it's easy to deny the Savior basically by saying you can save yourself. Now, does anybody in the world do that? Every world religion except Christianity, and a lot of Christianity says that you need to find a way to save yourself. That's karma and all the stuff that goes with that. It's all about the good works and those type of things. You know, there was a works we weren't supposed to know about. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, There's a good that looks good. It's not pleasing to God. It's false. It's wrong. It's a lie. So when people say, well, I'm going to work my way into heaven. It seemed like there was an old hippie song back in, what, 60s or 70s. Mike Dunn can tell us, climbing a stairway to heaven. We're not climbing a stairway to heaven. <laughs> when we go, we're going to be snatched out of here. There's no, there's no stairs, escalators, or anything else. We are... Twack changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's what that's what happens. And yet that's frequently what people are looking for. What can I do to work my way into God's graces? Well, first of all, you're a kid of his and he loves you. Okay? So the next thing you do is you try to do the things pleasing in his eyes. You know, looking upon his face. 
Have you ever noticed when we were kids, I know none of you were this way, when we were kids, sometimes we'd do something wrong, we called on the carpet, we didn't want to look mom or dad in the, in the face, did we? We need to be able to look the Lord right in the eye. Huh. That's going to take a while. The principle, be aware of the false messages of the infiltrators of the church who reject Jesus as the Messiah. There's a thing now called the, it's not now, it's within the last 20 years called the Jesus Conference. And they decided that they would go through the Bible and uh, find the real Jesus. Uh, they wrote books about it. In search of the historical Jesus. Okay, And what they did was anything that was miraculous, they took out. Said, nah, we can't put any miracles in there. Anything supernatural they took out. So what happened with the resurrection? Okay. What happened with feeding the 5,000? Well, that wasn't part of their Bible. And what they're doing is trying to take the Bible and take God and put him in a smaller and smaller box so they can control him. And that's just not going to happen. But that's that was the Jesus Conference. And that was... Uh, just an attack. You find the same type of thing happening in some of the different councils that they are doing anything and everything in order to be inclusive. And, you know, it's interesting. The scripture <coughs> wants to include everybody. Right? Because he died for the sins of the whole world. He wants the whole world to be saved. He, uh, the, the scripture wants to be inclusive, but there's a standard for entry, and that standard doesn't change. So beware of the false messages of the infiltrators of the church who reject Jesus as the Messiah. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for this day, for your goodness and love and mercy. Thank you for your blessings and your test. And, Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we would indeed be willing to Stand firm to learn your word and then stand firm for it. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.